Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have with us a very special guest, Dr. Vernon Grounds, PhD. Thanks for being here, Vernon. Dr. Grounds is the former president of Denver Seminary, former chancellor of Denver Seminary, was uh, for many years in the philosophy department and the counseling department. He founded the counseling department. Uh, when I arrived at Denver Seminary over 20 years ago, going on 25 years ago, I'm 27 and I was two when I got there. Uh, he was in the philosophy department. That's because uh, even though he has a PhD in psychology uh, with the dissertation on the concept of love and Sigmund Freud, where he critiques Freud and says Freud got it wrong. Uh, he was an expert in existentialism. Uh, so he taught those courses and um, the philosophy of love and stuff like that. Vernon uh, is the author of the book, Emotional Problems and the Gospel which is a fantastic little book. Um, I think it's out of print now. The original copyright is 1976. Uh, if you can find a copy, that would be, you know, I highly recommend you getting it. But we'll be doing a reading from this book uh, on the issue of anxiety, the Bible and anxiety. Vernon... Um, is not with us physically here because he died before we were able to record this uh, because of conversational implicature and, and assumptions about context and stuff. Let me clarify, even though there's nothing unclear about what I just said, he, he died before he could get on the podcast. Uh, just wanted to uh, make it clear that uh, I never discussed with Vernon him coming on the Republican Professor podcast because he died before uh, the Republican Professor ever existed. But I'm confident that he would have come on because I knew him. And uh, like so many others, thousands of others uh, felt known by him, although... It was the kind of thing where you felt more known than you knew him, not in a bad way, but just because that's the kind of guy he was. He, he was a servant. Um, he was, he made himself available to people like few other people I've ever heard of, let alone met. Um, and uh, he was a rare bird indeed. Uh, uh, in the early days, I mean, he, his undergrads from Rutgers and uh, he studied, I can't recall what he, he had a kind of a classical type education. I mean, he studied like legit stuff. He was not great inflated. It was, it was a tough education. It was during the great depression and he went to seminary. He had a lot of uh, struggles with his faith. He had, he had issues with his family, sickness, illness, death. And um, financial issues, uh, as you can imagine, in the Great Depression, he had this rare opportunity to go to college during the Great Depression. Um, 
and uh, later went to seminary, got his uh, BD, Bachelor of Divinity, back when that was the same as now the Master of Divinity because of great inflation and, and lowering standards. Um, but he, he got he got the Bachelor of Divinity. Then he got a PhD in psychology and was uh, uh, performing academic roles at, at the newly founded Denver Seminary in the early 50s before he finished his PhD. In fact, he had to write his dissertation again twice after it was rejected once. Um, and I don't know how he was able to do that with the administrative role and the teaching role that he had at the new seminary. But um, all that information is available in a book that I'll share after, and I'll share a little bit more about Vernon Ground's the person he was a a Mark O at Hatfield type of Republican. If you know who Mark O Hatfield is, um, Mark Hatfield was uh, from Oregon, and that's before they got really crazy and monolithically uh, Democrat over there. Mark Hatfield, for example, um, was the only Republican in the United States Senate in the 60s that opposed the Vietnam, our involvement in Vietnam, the way we were going about it. Um, he also served as governor of uh, Oregon, Republican governor, the first uh, governor in Oregon to serve two terms in the in the 20th century. And uh, Vernon Grounds was that kind of a Republican. In fact, uh, you'll see... Sometimes you'll see Vernon's blurbs where Mark Hatfield is, and you'll see Hatfield's blurbs where Vernon is. And um, so uh, there's a strain in the Republican Party that uh, is is like that, like like how Vernon was. And it's kind of my job to keep track of that stuff. So emotional problems in the gospel. I'm going to do a reading. This is the Bible and anxiety, part one. People have problems. No statement is more trite than that, yet no statement is more tragically true. Without exception, people have problems. All of us who belong to the human race are sinful creatures living east of Eden in a world under God's curse. Frail as well as fallen, fallen as well as frail, we are exposed to error, pain, failure, tragedy, and death. Life has its joys, to be sure, its experiences of delight and ecstasy, but life is also plagued and blighted by loneliness, disease, hate, depression, boredom, anxiety, grief, inferiority, and despair. Thus, even the skeptic who views the scripture as a hazard, haphazard collection of pre-scientific literature agrees with what Eliphaz says, Although affliction cometh forth of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground, yet man is born unto trouble, 
as the sparks fly upward. Job 5, 6, and 7. Thus, too, no atheist contradicts the lament in that same book. Man is born of a woman, is a few days and full of trouble. Job 14, 1. Yes, people have problems. And sometimes those problems bring to mind the sad verdict of Moses. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet their strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. That's from Psalm 90, verse 10. People have problems. And sometimes those problems bring to mind the apostles' testimony, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in hev heaviness through manifold temptations, 1 Peter 1.6. People have problems, and sometimes those problems bring to mind that strange assurance which our Lord gives to his disciples. In the world ye shall have tribulation, John 16.33. One thing, then, is beyond debate. Tension and trouble, pain and perplexity, sorrow and suffering are the common lot of mankind. You and I are convinced, of course, that in the gospel we have God's own solution to these plaguing problems. Faith in Jesus Christ, this is our persuasion enables frail and fallen human beings to face the anxieties and agonies of this sin-blighted world without going to pieces. Indeed, we affirm that the teachings of our Lord, considered simply as a sort of blueprint for abundant living, afford a source of wisdom that 20th century psychology has thus far been unable to equal. Our conviction is shared by a distinguished American therapist, an authority in the field of person help and person healing, James T. Fisher. In his interesting autobiography, A Few Buttons Missing, the case book of a psychiatrist, he sets down this considered opinion. If you were to take the sum total of all the authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out the excess verbiage, if you were to take the whole of the meat and none of the parsley, and if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, you would have an awkward and incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount. That's from James T. Fisher's autobiography. This is Vernon again. Thus, when it comes to prescribing a panacea for the problems that plague people, you and I as biblicists can speak with confidence. <clears throat> in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have God's own remedy for man's painful afflictions. 
The gospel, we boldly insist, is not an answer, one among many. It is the answer. But before we become too serenely complacent that we possess the panacea secular psychiatrists are still seeking to find and formulate, we had better candidly admit that Christianity sometimes seems to be an impotent failure in solving the problems that plague people. A few years ago, for instance, I sat in a church sharing as a visitor in its monthly observance of the Lord's Supper, holding in my hand the cup which symbolized the reconciling sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I had difficulty focusing attention on Calvary. The whole train of thoughts flashed kaleidoscopically through my mind. I happened to know rather intimately the history of that struggling fellowship. So as I sat there holding in my hand the symbol of heaven's healing for earth's sinful sickness, I thought of the pastor who in bitterness and brokenness had left that church. I thought of the psychic climate which prevailed within its small congregation, the divisiveness, the contentiousness, the suspiciousness, the defensiveness, the pettiness, the smugness, the exclusiveness, the phoniness, the loneliness, and the unhappiness. I realized sadly that an unkind outsider might have stigmatized that group as a Christian ghetto, a little clique of pious bigots, as a cynic once sneered. I also realized, to be sure, that my fellow worshipers were my fellow sinners and fellow sufferers, struggling perhaps more successfully than I was doing with their needs and anxieties and problems. <clears throat> I likewise realized that some of them were whole and healthy individuals, kind and loving, devoted to God and non-neurotically concerned to share their faith in the gospel. Yet I sat there musing to myself that by the most charitable of criteria, that fellowship was really sick. <laughs> Healing and reconciliation, freedom and abundant living were not noticeably its earmarks. It would not have impressed any secular sociologist or psychologist as a pilot model of ideal community. My musings that morning have often been repeated. Occasionally, I recall the tearful vehemence of a young man, a student wife of years back, now serving as missionaries overseas. Sorry, a young woman. <laughs> she had been telling me of some friends who had recently come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Then, shaken by emotion, she exclaimed that she was trying to keep them from attending her own church. She was afraid that among the unsaintly saints she had learned to tolerate, saints who were evidently narrow and nasty, her friends would become disillusioned with Christianity. Heatedly, she exclaimed, I don't want them 
spiritually ruined by my church. Having inhabited the ecclesiastical world for a long time, I could sympathize with her fears. Many biblically-oriented churches I was, and am keenly aware, are seriously sick, even as I realize that many Christians are by no means shining examples of healthy-mindedness. So perhaps we must honestly admit that, while biblical faith provides unlimited resources for emotional health and healing, those resources need to be more effectively applied and appropriated. Suppose we study, therefore, some of the hang-ups which commonly bother people, drawing specific insights from Scripture as to how these difficulties can be helpfully handled. Out of all the problems which plague people, which one shall we choose? Like, hardly, like hardy swimmers early on in a frosty morning who sat, who raced down to a lake and without even split seconds hesitancy dive into the ice cold waters, let us plunge into the problem of anxiety. I want to make a comment here. If you've never heard Vernon Ground's voice, I would encourage you to look up, somehow Google him, and try to listen to him for just a minute. I can't help but hear this in his voice. He had a very distinctive way of talking. There's nobody else I know that talks like that. Um, seemed like every time I ever talked to him, when I ran into him on campus, even in our short little exchange, he would use a word I'd never heard before. And I had to look it up. He had enormous vocabulary. He had a huge office at Denver Seminary. I don't know how many books. Thousands. Probably 20,000. I don't know. It was huge. He had all these canes. I would have never pegged him as a psychologist, but he did have a PhD in psychology back when it was relatively rare for um, that kind of training to be in seminary. Of course, the field of psychology is pretty recent the way it is now. I'm going to continue. Bible anxiety, Vernon Grounds. Today, it strikes us as incredibly naive, but in 1902, the well-known psychologist George Coe wrote in his widely circulated work, The Religion of a Mature Mind, quote, men have ceased to be afraid. We have our own unsolved problems as our fathers did, but they wake, awaken little mystic presentiment and no fear. We do not catch our breath at the thought of what may be, but boldly take to pieces every new phenomenon, certain in advance that it harbors no hobgoblins. Goblins. <laughs> I suspect, this is Vernon again, I suspect few intelligent persons would dream of uttering a boast like that in the 1970s. That's when this book was published. 
as we move into the last quarter of this century, our world is full of fear. As a matter of fact, our age has been called the age of anxiety. A recent And recent events have served to compound humanity's apprehensiveness on a global scale. Hence, we can fully understand why popular playwright Tennessee Williams unabashedly acknowledged that he is afraid. The hobgoblins, he says, have returned. Quote, whether or not we admit it to ourselves, we are all haunted by a truly awful sense of impermanence. I have always had a particularly keen sense of this at New York cocktail parties, and perhaps that is why I drink martinis almost as fast as I can. I snatch them from the tray. Fear and evasion are the two little beasts that chase each other's tails in the revolving wire cage of our nervous world. That's from Tennessee Williams. This is Vernon again. What we ought to do, though, at the outset of this study is to ascertain the nature of the psychic problem we are discussing. How define this viscera-tightening sensation that has been plaguing human beings ever since Adam and Eve were driven from the garden? The term we may use is relatively unimportant, whatever we call this viscera tightening sensation, whether we call it fear, worry, or dread. For our non-professional and non-technical purposes, these words may be assumed to mean essentially the same experience we have in mind when talking about anxiety. But no matter which of these terms we may use, anxiety can turn life into misery or drive a distressed individual into a state of semi-terror or reduce existence to a permanent nightmare. Derived from a Latin root, which means to struggle, anxiety is a feeling triggered by some threat, a feeling of apprehension and pressure, a feeling of being emotionally trapped or throttled. In its mild forms, it causes an uncomfortable reaction of tension. In its more extreme forms, it can produce a panic reaction as a person shrinks back from some specifiable horror or some inexplicable peril so sinister as to result in a sort of frozen immobility. It is this reaction, then, which the term anxiety denotes, a viscera-tightening sensation that ranges from mild tension to uncontrollable panic. What, we next inquire, induces this emotional state, which can be person personality disintegration disintegrating <laughs> i don't use that word so it, its causes are really countless some of them unconscious things of which anxiety-ridden people may not be aware 
Thus, an experiment is conducted in which two men under hypnosis are instructed that after emerging from the brief trance which has been induced, they will see a piece of candy that they desire but are forbidden to eat. They are also instructed they will not remember anything said to them while hypnotized. On returning to daylight consciousness, one man sees the candy and becomes terribly agitated, shaking and sweating as he refrains himself from seizing it. The other struggles, grabs the candy, gulps it down, trembling as he does so, only to gag and immediately vomit. Neither can explain this behavior, causes of which he is unconscious have brought on inexplicable anxiety. In the same way, an individual sometimes suffers an attack of acute fear for which he is unable to assign any reason. Often, however, whether or not an individual is able to fathom the causes of his own emotional state, Anxiety results from an internal conflict. Something is desired, yet at the same time prohibited. The anxiety-ridden person is like the caged cat, which has been trained to press a button in order to get food. After the cat has been conditioned by that action, the button is electrified. And then whenever the cat, more and more famished, touches it, a sharp shock jolts its body until at last, after growing immensely agitated, the cat sits trembling, immobilized by the conflictual situation. But in case you have difficulty identifying with a traumatized feline, picture yourself driving a car. You push the gas, push the gas pedal down to the floor and simultaneously jam on the brakes. That kind of impasse an internal conflict between desire and inhibition is a frequent cause of anxiety. We must not wrongly conclude, though, that all anxiety, whatever its cause and no matter how upsetting it is, ought to be deplored as harmful. The truth is that under many circumstances, this reaction pattern is positively beneficial. You see, when a person grows anxious, he is mobilizing his energies to face a sense danger, preparing either to fight or flight. Anxiety, therefore, is indispensable to ensure sheer survival. If we were completely devoid of fear, we might walk into a burning building or fail to jump when a car skids on wet pavement and careens toward us honking its horn. Anxiety, in short, has a positive motivational impact. Its value is flatly asserted in the letter of Jude, verse 23. And others save with fear, pulling them down out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Since salvation is the supreme value, any anxiety which proves saving cannot be written off as a liability. But on the other hand, anxiety can be destructively malignant. The fear-ridden person may be so uptight that he becomes either rigid or hyperactive, incapable of seeing things realistically because anxiety 
is distorting his perspective. He may, because of anxiety, be incapable of acting or reacting efficiently, or he may be incapable of thinking lucidly, or he may suffer from a headache, insomnia, nervousness, or fatigue, and develop eventually an ulcer or neurosis. Notice how these negative effects of anxiety are indicated in Scripture. Matthew 25, 24 and verse 25 discloses one malignant consequence of anxiety. Then he, he that, quote, then he which has received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee, and thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou, where thou hast not strawed, and I was afraid. And I went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that is thine. End quote. In this parable of the talents, Jesus is pointing out that anxiety or fear squelches responsibility. It inhibits productive activity. It stifles initiative and drains off courage. The fear-ridden person refuses to venture. He plays it safe and so fails to exploit his opportunities and develop his potentials. In John 20, 19, another malignant consequence of anxiety is suggested. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in their midst and said, saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Cowardice, we learn from this passage, is a consequence of anxiety. The fear-ridden person may be so apprehensive that he literally hides himself away from the hostile world behind locked doors, shackled by his phobias, imprisoned by self-built walls of dread and terror. In Luke 10, 38-40, still another malignant consequence of anxiety is disclosed. Quote, now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about with much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that thy sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. End quote. Mm -hmm. The excessive activity, the bustling busyness of a Martha or her male counterpart may be motivated by anxiety. The tense and troubled person is apt to be almost frantically activistic. And his inability to relax prevents him from enjoying even God's choicest blessings. In Luke 8, 4, still another malignant consequence of anxiety is suggested. 
quote, and that which fell among the thorns are they, which when they have heard go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection, end quote. Anxiety has a tendency to stifle growth. The inordinate care against which Jesus warns his disciples keeps a person from bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit and thus becomes and thus become mature. In 1 John 4:18, one more malignant consequence of anxiety comes to our attention. Quote, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hate hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. End quote. Anxiety, we are told, may produce actual pain, psychic distress, and finally physical distress too. Ah, the torment of mind which a fear-ridden person suffers. He may be living in a paradise, but some phobia, springing only from his imagination, can turn it into a purgatory. From a biblical perspective, then, these are a few of the malignant consequences of anxiety, and they are indeed only a few. No exhaustive inventory, let me assure you. And that's how he ends his chapter called The Bible and Anxiety. And that's just part one. That's from this reading is from Emotional Problems in the Gospel by Vernon Grounds, Dr. Vernon Grounds.